0: Today we are going to talk about diagnosis. What it means, how it came to be, how it's used for good, and for the not-so-good. Today I talk with trauma researcher Mary Catherine McDonald PhD, about the DSM, that veritable bible of mental health, and the sheer subjectivity with which it was conceived, written, and wielded by doctors and insurance companies alike. In particular, we focus on OCD. What causes it? No one knows, but because we can't help ourselves, we posit a few patently unprovable ideas. We also discuss the wonderful madness of Robin Williams, how to rebuke terrible questions, and what we think of people who like to tell other people who they are. And lastly, if you want to become a Patreon member, the link is in the program notes. What does being a Patreon member get you? Well, every once in a while, I have a Q&A. And if you subscribe, you will get your questions about mental health answered on the air. And you will receive a worksheet pertaining to your fabulous question. And you may get to hear secret recorded bonus content. So subscribe. My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What To Do.
1: Okay, so I wanna talk about diagnostics because this is an area that I think people don't know enough about. And I think psychology is one of these weird sciences where people think that because they're a human, they're an expert in psychology.
0: My therapist Seymour said that it's a delusion of mastery that people use this language and they kind of, they, they just try to sound like they're fucking smart.
1: Yeah. Delusion of mastery is really interesting because I think what's happening is that we over pathologize each other and ourselves without really any like actual data.
0: You wanted to talk about the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is a damn tongue twister, but that contains all the diagnoses of all mental disorders everywhere on the planet. And it's written by a bunch of people in a room somewhere who decided to agree on all the stuff like the DSM-3, which is two editions back. We're in the five now, which listed homosexuality as a disease. Um, I guess they took that out.
1: Fun fact about the DSM. It was supposed to just be a brochure. Like it started out as a brochure. Literally. Literally. And it was supposed to be so that clinicians could talk to each other about their patients. So, like, if you're practicing in California and you have a clinician friend in Massachusetts, you two can do research and try to figure out, like, okay, when I look at this socioeconomic class of population, these symptoms tend to pop up more often than in this other one. And you're.
0: Did it come in a glossy fold out with a boat on the <laughs> picture of the boat on the, car, on the We should it? find a, a picture of it. I don't know what it looks like. You can be depressed here. Right. <laughs> Go to this island,
1: a little pin yeah but it was just supposed to be so we could do research this is another another thing i think people don't really understand is that this isn't a fixed science Mm -hmm. i mean no science is fixed but i think we treat psychology as if these entries in the dsm are like fact And what's real is that we are constantly changing based on the anecdotal evidence that comes in and also just new technologies that are discovered that allow us to see things differently and it's changing all the time. Can
0: I talk about that for a second? Absolutely. So there's the the field of epistemology. Yes, yes. The study study of 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 knowledge, of knowing. And Seymour always talked about that. Did he really? Yeah, like what do you know is real? Yeah. Like one thing he once said to me is he said, Ben, very few provable statements are useful. Wow. Like if you think about, that for a minute it kind of starts to work when is it useful to say to prove this thing yeah i mean i guess you could prove that you know gas works but i guess philosophically speaking or psychologically speaking like he he even challenged the idea of proofs he's like he said i think a proof should be when you have just millions and millions of examples that support your point not necessarily like a mathematical thing that is sort of in its own little self-enclosed system yeah you know when is something true when do you when you can point to something and say that that right there it's not easy.
1: No, it's not easy. And we don't have any sense of that in, no. the, in the world.
0: Um, and speaking of the delusion of mastery, yeah. we were talking about this article about psycho speech and how people are incorporating the verbiage of, of psychology to sound like they know what the fuck they're talking about. Mm-hmm. They want to use these things to sound like they know. Yeah. And Seymour always said, beware of those who know. And so,
1: they don't know
0: what they don't know. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're sort of challenging doctrine right today. Uh, anyway.
1: So it started out as this brochure. And it was supposed to be purely for clinicians to be able to talk to each other and to be able to do research and find out here are some trends that we see that are worth understanding. Because before we had the advent of brain technology and a lot of the blood testing that we do, it was total hypothesis about what a disorder even was. And so... It was for researchers and clinicians, and that's it. And then in the United States, the insurance companies got a hold of it, and they determined that okay, we can figure out how to cover you. So if you have a biologically based illness like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, then we have to have parity with what we would cover you for if you had, you know, lung cancer.
0: And it's almost like it became doctrine once it got welded to money.
1: Completely, exactly.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's interesting also that part of the reason that alcoholism got categorized as a disease and that was actually them getting one over on the insurance companies was that like we'll we'll say it's a disease and so that you you have to treat it you
1: have to cover you have to cover it oh wild
0: yeah well also i want to pause and say that when we say the word disease what we mean is Mm -hmm. a collection of symptoms people get confused about the word disease because it it means that you are exhibiting these symptoms for instance like hiv is a virus the disease aids is a series of symptoms that if they appear, you have this disease. HIV happens to be the cause, but you can have a disease and you cannot know what the cause is. People have alcoholism, Mm -hmm. but we're not really sure what the cause is. The damning thing about the DSM is that depression, anxiety, bipolarism are just, you have to meet certain criteria like, mm-hmm. okay, you're not sleeping, you're not eating, you're sad most, more days than not. To have Some of it's subjective because you can say, yeah, this person's definitely lost 20 pounds. This person definitely hasn't slept in five days. They're mm-hmm. probably manic. But all it is is a series of observations and self-reporting from the patient. Mm-hmm. That's all a disease mm-hmm. is, period, Ever, And then you have this thing called differential diagnosis where it means, well, these are the collection of symptoms. So this is probably depression, but on a differential scale, it might be bipolarism because maybe we're seeing the depressive end of this person's mania. Yep. Right. Or maybe they're on drugs. So mm-hmm. a differential diagnosis means it could be several different things. These are these are the other things that it could be. Yeah. And we have to rule those out. And
1: we have no blood tests. To yeah. be like, you have depression or you have whatever. Because
0: nobody yeah. fucking knows anything. Right. Really.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. It's guessing. Yeah, it is. And people, I don't know if you've known anyone who's got like 30 years under their belt in terms of psychiatric diagnostics. Most people that I've had to say they still often get it wrong. Really? Oh, yeah. Because of that, yeah. because these diagnoses are based on guesses
0: like one of the really tragic ones is schizophrenia schizoaffective disorder and bipolarism and even depression because you can have psychotic symptoms if you're bipolar when you're manic and if you're depressed you can have psychotic symptoms and so they give them the wrong fucking meds you can also have it
1: from being dehydrated
0: really? Mm -hmm. only you would know that (laughs) the shit that I learned from MC drink your water folks
1: (laughs) I mean like severe dehydration but you can have a psychotic episode because of dehydration which is wild and it can also be situation like an incredible amount of stress can put you into a psychosis.
0: So I've been crazy for a few years now, is what you're saying?
1: <laughs> Should we try to diagnose you? Live? We can
0: diagnose me. I'm wearing a button-up blue shirt and I have curly hair.
1: A patient presents. That's
0: what a- is observable.
1: <laughs> Do you write those things in your notes? Never. Like patient is pleasantly dressed.
0: Patient in a pleasant mood. What's There's some weird word for the patient is normal yeah. feeling. What's that word? It's like.
1: I know what you mean, but I don't. It's like, like amenable or
0: something. No, it's even <laughs> worse. It's like it starts with the EU. Oh, uh, the word is eurhythmic, um, which sounds like the band the Eurythmics, <laughs> but that's a totally different joke. So it's like when someone when they can say patient can walk, mm-hmm. they say patient is ambulatory. Right. Patient can walk. Right. Why do you have to say ambulatory? <laughs> Just he walked or she walked. Right. It it happened. <laughs> they they. <laughs> the
1: dude stood up.
0: The dude stood up. Anyway
1: going back to like epistemology there are these levels of knowledge and philosophers will argue about this until the end of time
0: they will literally do that until yeah, the end of time 100 percent. they like, always have been arguing like time will it. end and just before that they will have been arguing about hey i think you're wrong wait oh shit it's the anyway <laughs> go ahead
1: so there's these different levels of expertise, beginner and amateur and then an expert. And I forget the term for this, but there's this awareness and they've done studies about this, that if you think that you are an expert, you're more likely to get things wrong. Dunning-Kruger effect. Yes. Then if you have a healthy understanding of what you might not know.
0: And it's not some deep spiritual things. The people who know more have enough data to literally actually know yeah. how big their gaps are. Right. When I got my black belt in jiu-jitsu, I was like, oh my god they gave me a black belt they're out of their fucking minds
1: (laughs) because you don't feel like you know anything. you know you don't right right you can actually see it's not like you're
0: humble it's not like oh i'm this humble person and i just (laughs) i'm just so spiritually enlightened that i realize i don't know it's like i just got my ass beat by a 14 year old who has been doing jiu-jitsu since he was two anyway keep going
1: (laughs) so diagnosis is always differential the experts know that they get it wrong a lot of the time because what they're looking at is a cluster of symptoms that's appearing and also symptoms are not fixed. There's a huge amount of variety in the way that someone presents with any particular disorder. Bipolar is a great example because you can have, and usually media gives us these stories of really extreme, the most extreme version of bipolar that you can have. Mania to the point of destroying your life. And then depression, again, to the point of destroying your life. And it's Mm -hmm. all really extreme. But when people actually come in with symptoms, they're often on this huge spectrum. And so the symptoms can kind of sneak by people. And weirdly, shifting symptoms has been one of the things that has caused a lot of aspersion to be cast onto the field.
0: For those of, of us that don't know what aspersion means, could you define <laughs> Like that? doubt. Doubt, okay.
1: So like when, when- It's like ambulatory, but for Yeah, doubt, exactly. So I'm aspersion, the thing. <laughs> okay, big word. Fast aspersion. So like for the entry of- trauma, which is the one that I know the most about, obviously, when the symptoms didn't match, when patients would come in and their symptoms wouldn't match exactly, instead of being like, oh, maybe we've got something wrong and we need to expand our definition or something has changed like in society, which is changing the symptom, usually what happened is those patients were just assumed to either have something else or be lying. And that's wild because who would do that malingering that was a real thing
0: but what is malingering
1: that you're basically faking it because you want to get out of something else and so it's kind of like the psychological equivalent of shooting yourself in the foot so you don't have to get drafted
0: you know the cash 22 like
1: the book yeah yeah you know how it worked i don't remember
0: the idea was is that they'd go on these bombing runs dump their load and come back and it was really dangerous because they would fly over you know, battlefields and they were just targets. They had no defense. They would just mm-hmm. get shot at. And so it was this really, really dangerous thing to do. The only way to not go on these bombing runs was to be declared insane. Oh. And so the way you would be declared insane is you'd go in and you'd say, hey. And insanity was not having any regard for your own well-being. So okay. you'd go to the doctor. You'd say, hey, I, I am going on these bombing runs. I clearly have no regard for my own well-being. So you have to ground me. Mm-hmm. The doctor would say, okay. But unfortunately, as soon as they would ground him, that would show that the patient had regard for his own well-being, and they, so they'd send him back up.
1: Oh, wow. I've never heard that.
0: I don't know if that's an actual historic fact. Sure, just I just, I just It was from the book, and it's really kind of funny. It's like this early example, I guess, yeah. of malingering, sort of.
1: Totally. Yeah. And then that backfires immediately.
0: Anyway, so keep going. So malingering...
1: I can't even remember why we were talking about malingering.
0: The doctors were assuming that they were faking it. Because oh, because they,
1: they didn't have like a category that was neat enough to fit the... Right. The...
0: It's kind of like there's this other category in, in diagnosing called NOS, which means mm-hmm. not otherwise specified. So it's like if somebody got schizophrenia, but let's say they only go crazy for like... Uh, six days and mm-hmm. then they're fine and then they go crazy for another six days and it doesn't seem to fit any of the normal patterns mm-hmm. and so they don't get it so they just write N- not otherwise specified they do that for everything like per- there's personality disorder and otherwise specified mm-hmm. it's like okay this person's clearly whack but we're not really sure <laughs> so we're just gonna put you in this bucket
1: we've got disorganized behavior but we can't quite pin yeah. it down what do you think the most common self-diagnosis that is wrong is
0: Ooh, what a question I think ADHD.
1: You do? Yeah, me too. People always talk about it. Yeah. Now,
0: I have patients in the past who have clearly, correctly diagnosed with them themselves with ADHD. They go on meds and holy shit. Life changes. Life changes. Yeah. Quick, mm-hmm. right? They can focus. They can do the mm-hmm. things, right? Stay present, all that. But
1: Like not everyone on earth has it.
0: I think another thing I see with clinicians is that they really like to talk about about patients being on the spectrum. I hear that a lot yeah yeah spectrum disorders have become like this weird bucket the therapists do this too where if they they see something they don't understand yeah my sense is they oh it must be on the on the spectrum or if this person has an odd personality they're on the spectrum it's Mm -hmm. like it's like the nos thing it's like you don't you just don't know right why can't you just say yeah he's that i don't really see what i don't know what i'm seeing but like i have i had a patient once said ben i really love you because you're able to say i don't know yes and honestly i just say i don't know because i don't want to get in trouble what
1: And I think clinicians sometimes get, we like to think that it's all ego. And I think a lot of times it is ego, but there are also a lot of times where a clinician is in the room with a heartbreaking patient and has no understanding of what's going on. And so I think Heartbreaking? Yeah, just like like, there's a heartbreaking set of symptoms that don't seem to make sense or that have never crossed their-
0: And they want to help. Yeah, they want to help. And so they're,
1: they're like, okay, it must be this. Let's go with this diagnosis.
0: One thing that you see a lot in my field, especially when I worked in addiction- because I saw so many somatic Mm -hmm. issues. That means somatic is like of the body. You see the limits of medicine. Yeah, right. And you realize that we're kind of in the stone age.
1: Yeah, we are. That's a humbling thing when you go to a doctor Mm -hmm. and they say, like, not only do I not understand, but the entire medical community has no idea what's going on.
0: We're like, here, we'll try this cream on your, or take this one pill. Let's just see what happens. Right.
1: We'll give it a shot.
0: The thing is, is that most people go in for routine stuff. Mm -hmm. Like the stuff that we do fix, like broken arms, broken legs, certain basic medications we do over and over again. So everybody has this illusion that the medical stuff is just sort of all encompassing and it's it's really not.
1: And that medicine is fact. And so you go to a doctor and you get a fact. Here, I have a symptom let me go get this fact and I'm going to go to a psychologist and let me get this fact what's wrong with me what's wrong with me what's wrong with me truth be told it would be a lot easier for everyone if we had simple problems but it's almost never as simple as here's your diagnosis here's the pill it's done even in that case even when it is that simple you still need to do a bunch of integration around what it is to have whatever it is
0: yeah i've talked a lot about precision versus clarity Mm -hmm. and precision is the complementary opposite of clarity so as you get more precise you lose clarity Mm -hmm. as you move in to see the small thing as to you know do surgery Mm -hmm. on the bone to do this to do that you lose the larger picture and as you stand back and look at the whole patient look at all the symptoms together in their whole life and their whole thing you lose precision those two things you can get lost in either of them because you have some doctors that are horribly imprecise who just sort of stand back and say okay well this is clearly stress related and da da, in your socioeconomic position it's like no man like his you know he's, he's he, I don't know he's bleeding out of his fingernails like there's something's clearly going on right here, right? <laughs> right so and it goes back and forth where mm-hmm. you have doctors who do like they'll want to do surgery on every freaking thing yeah and it's like again that's super precise but you're missing the forest for the trees type thing
1: I love the way you frame that up the thing that I always say that's kind of similar is about reductive explanations mm. and this comes from the person that I studied The most when I was writing my dissertation was Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who is a phenomenologist. Have you ever heard of the story, the case of Schneider? He was actually a combat veteran. This was like 1945 or something. He had all these physical things going on that no one could explain, and Merleau-Ponty reanalyzed his whole case and figured out that what was going on was more psychological, and therefore still bodied like there's not actually a split between the mind and the body so he was anti dualism this idea that we have a separate mind and body they actually influence each other and he was also very pro-science but anti-scientism and scientism is the idea that you will have a reductive explanation that will explain something and if you don't have a reductive explanation it's just because the science hasn't gotten there
0: wow oh, seymour talked about science people being scientistic yeah science like
1: what was his take
0: it's similar. It's like the delusion of mastery thing. Yeah, like it's we're gonna, too reductive. We're going to find a thing yeah. here and say what this is so that we can say that, that there's a thing there. And so yeah. that I can sound like I know what I'm talking about and we can just move on to the next exactly. human Totally the next problem.
1: <laughs> and I you used know? to get this like when I first started like giving lectures and stuff about PTSD, people weren't really talking about trauma as much as they are now. And I would get that question every single time I presented and someone would say, what are you going to do when we figure out the pill or when we figure out how to prevent trauma? And it was like, what?
0: I mean, the question is insane. It's exactly. It sets up a philosophical construct that is false. Right, right. And that's the thing people don't realize about when someone asks you a question. Because as soon as you answer a question like that, you've you've accepted the premise, the premise of the question, of the question yeah. which is that a pill can do something about right. that. This is crazy. Yeah. Seymour often used to say, I disagree with the question. I love that. I do that to people and they're like, well, you can't say that. And, like, <laughs> and then his other thing was, well, you're not in charge of this conversation, are you? Boom. Like, Well, uh, uh, yeah, no, you're not. It's two people having a conversation and there's no rules, motherfucker. I mean, we're both speaking English, but that's about it.
1: Right. (laughs) Right. Oh, man, that's fascinating. Yeah, you would have liked him. Yeah, no, he sounds like a hoot.
0: Do you have any um, stories that illustrate your point about people being reductive?
1: There's a lot of clients, I'm sure you see this too, increasingly, who are really convinced that they have a diagnosis that is going to explain everything. I'm thinking of a client in particular who for sure has some elements of OCD and also has a lot of other stuff. And so getting the belief across just just as a let me plant a seed that it's possible mm-hmm. <laughs> that not all of your problems come from OCD which I think gives us kind of a picture of the upshot of being too reductive is that then if you have a problem, so like, let's say I have a diagnosis of OCD. Now, if I have a problem, I can blame it on OCD because I know that I have that thing. And it's like, well, then you're actually missing what's happening, which could be because of something completely different. The thing that I'm thinking of, somebody who has OCD and struggles with that and also has a pattern of relationship behavior that is really unhealthy Mm -hmm. and has nothing to do with OCD. Right. And so it's like, okay, you're convinced that you have this diagnosis and it's true. I'm not trying to take that away from you, but we need to be able to look at this relationship pattern from a more holistic perspective. Right. You know what I mean?
0: What do you think causes OCD? Any thoughts on that?
1: Oh, I don't know that my thoughts on this are like fair because I have OCD. You do? <laughs> I do.
0: May I ask what kind?
1: It's just very mild. It's usually comes up as like health anxiety and cleanliness stuff.
0: So phobia a little bit?
1: phobia for sure, less about like other people and more about I will have something that will end me prematurely.
0: So the hypochondria, you know what you mean?
1: Yeah, but it doesn't feel to me like classic hypochondria. It's more like really wild health anxiety that I notice really spikes when I feel a lot more anxiety in my life.
0: I've always, my theory (laughs) is that OCD is basically a way of mitigating anxiety. A
1: hundred percent. Health anxiety comes from a whole string of people in my life dying almost immediately. But I have a OCD in my house about where things are placed. And I don't know I'm laughing. This is like a really dark story. But one of the things that was really terrifying in the house I grew up in was that my mom would go into these rages and she would trash my room because it wasn't clean in the right way. But she would never let me know what that meant. And really looking back now, she just had a lot of rage and she was out of control. And so she was trashing my room. It had nothing to do with the secret rule that I broke. But in my house, things have to be in a place that feels good or I feel bad. And that logic makes no sense to anyone else. Right. And it's something that I've gotten a lot of work done on, and it doesn't control my life. So I don't mm-hmm. need to take medication. I can like function and right. have other people in my house and all this other stuff. But when I'm struggling with stuff in my life that feels out of control, it gets worse and i will end up kind of rearranging and cleaning my house for like four hours to try to make it like feel okay right right and that i think just comes from being terrified as a child like
0: yeah i knew someone someone like that they were horribly impoverished and mm. they had to live in absolute squalor at some stranger's house it was fucking gross like like, you know crap in the bathtub and like just like some of the worst stuff i think i've ever heard Mm -hmm. and it was like when she was 11 12 she had germ phobia after that, so sure. it started to develop and I can, I get it.
1: It's like an overcorrection. Like you yeah. had no control over the situation as a child, and so your psyche is like, "Oh, we're just going to have control forever." And yeah. Well,
0: now I often talk about externalization. Like when you can't go within to heal, yeah. and that's not to say that somebody with OCD is disconnected from their inner world. I'm just saying that externalization is one form of healing. So, in the moment when you when you're feeling out of control, yeah. and you go and control the thing, you feel a, a just a second of like 100%. probably dopamine like relief, or yeah. just just a microsecond. Totally. I would imagine.
1: Oh my God, yeah. You know, having a lot of awareness about it now, which I totally was not aware of for years, like until recently. Having awareness of it allows me to see it from the outside and I can see what I'm doing with, which both like makes it more and less uncomfortable at the same time because it's like, okay, I am compulsively cleaning and rearranging and I cannot stop. I really feel like I can't stop because something bad will happen. That's kind of the marker to me of OCD, like from a lived perspective is that if you don't do the thing, something bad's going to happen. You're out of control or there's terror or
0: whatever. Fascinating. And again, you guys can hear it's me and MC are talking about, well, here's this o- OCD stuff and she has it. And I'm, you know, a clinician and I live with someone who had it and it, we don't get it. Mm-hmm. We kind of get it. We right. have ideas, but we don't really know. Mm-hmm. Like we don't know. We don't really know where it comes from. Really. We're just, right. we're just having ideas. Right. Like we're not Right. You know what I'm saying?
1: Totally. And I had a fight with a psychiatrist once because I went in. This was like I had moved. And so I went to a new psychiatrist because I was in a new state. You get all these assessments and you take all these tests. And I showed up as having OCD, which I know. And he wanted to medicate it and i said it's not disrupting my life there's no distress Uh, this is currently something that i feel like i can control because i was there for panic disorder and um he was really pushing back like you need to be medicated and i was like why which is another huge thing about diagnostics which gets really complicated because who decides what distress looks like
0: right who decides they were were hearing this thing on pain like how do you decide what pain is
1: i think the liberal-minded folks who are listening will be like, well, the patient decides who's you know in distress, but that gets complicated when you've got someone with bipolar mania who mm-hmm. feels great.
0: Yes, it does,
1: and is destroying their lives.
0: Do you think that that doctor was on a power trip, or do you think he was concerned, or what do you think? Where do you think his oh, thing was coming from? we're diagnosing him? He, that was a behavior. That was a neurotic behavior. That was a neurotic. That he had a disease, <laughs> and we are figuring out what the disease is, folks.
1: He was a trip. He was, I actually wrote about him in the book because it was the worst experience I've ever, I've had incredible luck with therapists and psychiatrists. Like Really? Yeah.
0: You're the only one.
1: <laughs> I know, I know. People have the worst horror story, but I have just like found the best people for whatever I was dealing with, except for this guy. So that was like our second appointment or something. You do all the like testing and then you come in for the follow-up or whatever. He was a cowboy. He was a lot like older. This was in a Southern state, but he was educated from Harvard. So he, I had done my research, like he had an impressive pedigree, but he was absolutely the worst clinician I've ever seen. He told me like I was going through, starting to go through the very slow, horrifying shattering of my marriage. And it was a really complicated situation. And I was like on session three or four, and I was starting to delve more into detail about what was going on. And he sat back in his chair and he's like, it's always the same shit with you, isn't
0: it? What an asshole.
1: And I got up and I was just like, we're done.
0: <laughs> like, Good.
1: where well, this is session. First of all, I can come for 15 years and talk about the shattering of my marriage. Like, if that's what you need to do. Exactly. That's what you need to right. Do. Like that's not. And then he immediately was like, well, this is your resistance. <laughs>
0: this is the thing. I heard Patrick Stewart say something cool once.
1: <laughs> He's so great. He's so amazing.
0: <laughs> he was in an interview where the interviewer asked him what stigma or what did he think about the fact that he had to play a gay character Mm. in a movie and how did how did he think that that would affect his career and he said you know when i i looked at the interviewer and i said you know i i think that the question really says more about the interviewer than the answer would ever say about me Uh, yeah. yeah pain so oftentimes like when people say shit like that their position they they're saying, "Hey, look at this thing about yourself," mm-hmm. and in the way they're doing it, they're stating something about themselves yeah. that's far more potent than any response you could give.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Most of the time, when somebody's coming at you with their knowledge, yeah, they're exposing, they're taking all their clothes off, and they're. Sort yeah. of masturbating in front of you. Like yeah. it's just really. It's like stop that. You right. look. You're embarrassing yourself, and right. you don't know it.
1: And that's really inappropriate. Yeah. And it's,
0: ama- it's amazing to watch <laughs> yeah. how often people will do that. They'll tell you who you are in the mm-hmm. middle of a conversation to kind of get one over on you. Right.
1: And you're like, I'm sorry. What?
0: Like even if you're right, mm-hmm. the fact that you're making that move means right. that you're a fucking asshole. Yeah. And the, more than the crime of the thing is that you don't know that you're committing a crime. Right. You don't know that you're being a little a little bitch. Excuse right. me. <laughs> you don't know that you're doing that. Right. Right. And that's so much worse. Yeah.
1: Yeah it's so much worse oh i was really lucky in that situation because of where i was both in like my own growth and also my understanding of the field that i knew he was full of shit but if i had come to him five years earlier i wouldn't have known he was full of shit right. i would have thought he was right
0: oh, yeah i'm not gonna even get into the whole gender power dynamic thing yeah I know. that's another podcast uh next subject
1: yes I'm so stuck on because um, I'm sure you have to send patients sometimes to get you know a psychiatric evaluation. Yeah, and they can be really harmful.
0: The, the evaluations. Yeah,
1: well, depending on the clinician and.
0: Um, what's your question?
1: Are you ever nervous sending someone? How do you send a patient to get a psychiatric?
0: Oh, no, I'm not nervous about that. Okay. No. Usually, well, there's there's a cu- couple things. There's a neuropsych assessment, mm-hmm. which is like a battery of tests, it's like a three-hour thing, mm-hmm. where you sit and you decide, you know, whether or not you have personality disorder or person, which personality traits you have, or you're mm-hmm. bipolar, and it's just a whole battery of tests. It's hard to get people to sit for those things. Mm-hmm. Usually what yeah. I send them to is it's just a psychiatrist for for meds. But what I say is, look, I am not necessarily in favor of meds. Mm-hmm. What I am saying is that it can be useful to talk to a psychiatrist if in the event that you feel that you need to be medicated or that you are having panic attacks or you need a specific prescription, you will have already spoken to a psychiatrist and you, the patient, will have the power to manage your own care. And I always use this phrase, you'll have this psychiatrist in your back pocket if needed. Yeah. So that's how I frame it.
1: That's a great way to frame that up.
0: I never frame it as you need to go in and we need to figure out what the fuck's wrong with you. If I were to send someone to psychosocial assessment, it would be uh hey we're just trying to get information here and i always explain diagnosis and i i I go on a thing
1: me too (laughs) yeah i don't just
0: i don't just do that shit casually yeah same so i'm never afraid what's your thing can you i'm doing it right now okay yeah this is the thing i talk to them just like this Yeah. because it is that you Mm -hmm. are in control it's your body it's your mind Mm -hmm. the people though these people that do these things are just humans with little measuring sticks whatnot you know, we also do a little thing on a primer on how to use this. You know, let's say they test you and there's some kind of disability. Well, how can you use that? Right. How can you use that to your advantage? Mm-hmm. What kind of exceptions can you get for school, work? Who knows? Right. Use it. Yep. Let's do this thing.
1: Yep. Let's make your life a little easier. Yeah. Yeah. That
0: it's, shit's powerful, man. Totally. But yeah. And if they ever put up resistance, I never push. Yeah. They say, no, and I don't, like if someone says, yeah, I'm not really not into meds. I really don't like psychiatrists. I I bring it up again, zero times.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, no. Does <laughs> that answer your question? It does. All There's right. three things. I do the, something very similar. There's three things that I add, which I think you probably also say. Mm-hmm. One is that just this background of, you know, diagnostics is sometimes presented as if it's this perfect science. It's very much an imperfect science. A good clinician will say that and present you with your data in a way that is indicative that it's more complicated than whatever they're trying to diagnose you right, with. Right 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 right. Two is that diagnostics are sometimes wrong and it can be helpful to get a second opinion if something comes up that's totally whack. Because I've seen that happen too where someone comes forward and I'm like, I've known you for a year and a half. Like I can't diagnose you, but you 100% don't have that. Let's get somebody else. That's rare, but it has happened. And I think it's important to look at it like a medical diagnosis. If you got a diagnosis of a, some terminal illness, you'd get a second opinion and the doctor would recommend that you get a second opinion. Yeah.
0: How do you, I am not casting shade on the fact uh, yeah. uh, that that you're not a licensed clinical psychologist. No, I'm not a licensed. Okay. I
1: cannot. I always am super clear about that. Yeah, also, I know that. Way.
0: And so yeah. my question is: is how do you, when you're working with somebody, you have the knowledge of a psychologist without question to mm-hmm. me, but you're not able to pull levers, right. even the way I am, and yeah. I'm just an MFT. Yeah. Right. So how do you do that with the patient or with, with clinicians? With patients and clinicians, um, have... I
1: kind of act like a patient advocate, and I say to the patient, number one, I can't diagnose you. I can present to you what I've seen in the research search and usually what I'm presenting is like here's what this side says and then here's what the other side says so I'm kind of like problematizing something rather than saying like here is what you have and then with clinicians, I've never had an issue. Usually I'm referring someone out. You know, someone has to sign. If you want other clinicians to be able to talk to each other, you have to sign a waiver. And so I'll explain that to the client, say that they don't have to at all. But if they are if they want to, they can share their results with me. I can interface with their clinician. And I've never had a an issue. Mm-hmm. I think because I'm just so like, I'm almost in the advocate position, which mm-hmm. is a lot less of a like, charge.
0: And you're also really nice.
1: Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's like, I'm not presenting it like I know the thing and they don't know the thing and you should go to this person because I know this is wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but there also have been cases where it's very clear that a client has something that I have a really strong suspicion that they have that is getting in the way and there's a treatment path that's available to them that I know about. And I'm like, if you go take this, here's what I think is going on. If you take this treatment path, I think this will happen. And that has usually borne out pretty well. And then the third thing that I talk about, which I know you talk about too and you didn't mention, is this idea that like you can be in remission from a psychiatric thing. And that's, I think, something that most clinicians, like I've never heard, other than you, I've talked to you about that, I've never heard anyone else talk about that.
0: What, what do you mean? in? Rem- I know what, in res- what do you mean by like?
1: Let's say you have major depressive disorder. If you get that diagnosis, it doesn't mean you're going to have depression your entire, entire life. Sure, yeah. And even if you have bipolar disorder.
0: You can be in remission. And totally. Yeah, yeah. You can be in remission from schizophrenia. Right. Like, yeah. Meaning
1: you haven't managed and you don't have any breakthrough symptoms that are disruptive. But I don't think that's offered up enough. So I think people oh, get really freaked out because yeah. they're like.
0: Yeah, I got a question on my uh, last my Q and A it was that he he said do you once you get depression are you going to yes. have that forever yeah. it's like no people just think that the 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 problem is is that diagnosis got wrapped up psychological diagnosis got wrapped up in people's brains with with physical ailments mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't work right it's sort of like look if you if you have a broken leg right you have a broken leg and it will be a broken leg until it heals yep. if you have cancer or what or or well not cancer is a bad example because it's oh, cancer is
1: a good example because you can be in remission
0: yeah i know but what I, what I mean to say is that most things people think about well i take this pill i do this thing and it goes away mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um or i keep it at bay right and there's something about the idea that when you mention I have cancer, I have a tumor, I have I have a broken leg, I have this flu, I have HIV, I have what I have. This is this thing, and it's in my body. It's a a, a real chemical biochemical switch has been thrown yep. that is, in a sense, permanent because it's it's an indelible part of my body, mm-hmm. right? It is mm-hmm. undeniably there. You it's can measure fact. it with a yeah. stick, right. right? Yeah, very small stick. But <laughs> in that sort of relationship. It's not even the silver bullet thing. It's the relationship to how we think of of us having a thing. And so that sort of, this is hard to talk about, that sort of frame is put on psychology Mm -hmm. and it doesn't fucking work because Mm -hmm. psychology is completely freaking subjective most of the time and fluid. And it's just a totally different deal. Right. And all these people walking around with all their fucking psychobabble babble, yeah. thinking they know a thing, yeah. because they know what a goddamn stub toe is. Right. Am I making any sense? You're totally making sense. Okay, I can't there's tell. Do
1: you, do you, there was a Robin Williams thing
0: where There'll, he's like. There's always a Robin Williams thing. There's always a Robin Williams thing. He's playing. Like, <laughs> he covered every topic. <laughs> <laughs> he just he covered he covered that many. I I ran into I I was lucky enough to run into Robin Williams a few times in Marin County. Really? At the Java Hut outside uh, in Fairfax, that little that little cafe yeah because he would go there and park his car and ride up the hill
1: oh up to rancho, yeah. yeah
0: and he was out of his mind and he would like he was lovely he would he would not stop tell, tell, telling jokes oh like God. he would he was standing in line and the barista was like okay do you want uh, this six bottles in this and this and this and this and this and he goes yeah six bottles of water jack and coke a flow chart because they were all women
1: yeah like
0: and he was just he just would just ramble off like he couldn't stop he couldn't stop he yeah. could not stop yeah honestly like 40 percent of it made no sense at all <laughs> right like what did you what yeah i don't understand that and i think it was just above my head like yeah anyway he covered every topic yeah because he was madman. so what did he say
1: he said that <laughs> no I'm, I'm on this whole other tangent do you know what the cocks feeling what we'll come back to the praecox do you know what this is i
0: think of a peacock The image of a peacock with like a <laughs> crown on and with the stethoscope just popped into my head what's a what is a praecox um
1: the praecox notion i can't remember what, this is like from like the 1800s they were studying studies about diagnosis and how reliable diagnostics was and one of the things you can really test that with is someone who's schizophrenic especially if their schizophrenia is out of control because folks who sh- who have schizophrenia are in this reality and another reality at the same time yeah they so they did the study about diagnosing schizophrenia and how which diagnostic instrument was most reliable. And they came up with this this term, the precox feeling, which is this idea that within about fifteen minutes of being with someone, you could tell whether they have schizophrenia with like eighty five percent validity. Wow. That's a random, boring fact. But okay. I'm just thinking about when you said that, because I don't know if you've spent time around folks who have schizophrenia, I but have. like you're trying to like kind of track and then they will land in reality and something really profound happens and then they will like leave. Oh, so
0: it's very measurable. Yeah. Yeah, I will say that diagnosis, even though we're bagging on it, is incredibly useful because it's like signposts.
1: Right, yeah. It can give you a really clear picture, which then can help you help the person. But I was just, for some reason, it made me think of that because I was thinking like, man, I don't expect Robin Williams to be someone who only makes sense for... 40 percent of the time yeah oh <laughs> but he was so
0: well i mean he's popping in and out of our reality in a way yeah oh yeah uh or he's
1: so fast that he's only you're only catching up with his reality every
0: i i don't know i will say that all the rumors about him are fucking true he was just unbelievably smart
1: someone said he was i don't know if it was oprah said he was like nearly impossible to interview because you just have no control
0: yeah that's the, the feeling i got uh, I ran into the man like six or seven times, so I got a feeling for it, like yeah. which is a really a privilege. That's wild to be able to have done that. It was kind of like he like like a dog would walk up and he'd pet the dog and go woo woo. Doo, doo, doo. He would like bow like the dog. Yeah. Or Or uh, Hispanic folk walked up and he's like, oh see, yeah see. Like he was just he just couldn't. Yeah, nothing. It was like he would depart. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: I don't know what what would you diagnose that as? Oh, I have no idea. Rob Williamsism.
1: Rob Williamsism. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway I was going to say about Robin Williams I don't know if we should cut out that whole part about Robin Williams because no, it, it sounds like I'm saying he has schizophrenia or had schizophrenia I did not that's not what I mean at all it just reminded me of that okay talking about diagnostics but he had this thing where he there was some skit and he was playing a drunk person and that must have been easy he's, for him right he's stumbling <laughs> around and he's going you don't know fuck about shit yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think about that phrase all the time because I'm like, none of us know fuck about shit, you know?
0: Yeah, I could name that. I could name the podcast. You don't know fuck about shit. You don't know
1: fuck about shit. But then we're we're on Instagram and we're diagnosing ourselves and each other. And it's really corrosive. Yeah, it is. Because we don't know fuck about shit and we don't know that we don't know fuck about shit. And so we're just out, out here doing harm. You know
0: what it reminds me of? One of the best books written on psychology isn't about psychology and it's called Adventures in the Screen Trade. Okay. And he talks about how people fail upwards in Hollywood, like they fail and they get promoted. Yeah. And and just all the insanity and yeah. everyone's trying to figure out what makes a hit. Yeah. And what works and why someone becomes oh, famous and what really the thing is. Yeah. And he has this. And he says, "Let me say something." And he writes it. He writes in all caps on the page. Nobody knows anything. And the next paragraph is, "Wait a minute, that bears repeating." And he just, <laughs> nobody knows anything. Wild. <laughs> so
1: that's such a good parallel yeah with for the field which is also like i don't want to leave people with this idea that it's like no one has any idea of what's going on.
0: It, they don't. And again, it, diagnosis is incredibly useful. Like I can look at uh, you know, they have this this whole system where you look at the axis axis 1 through 5.
1: Oh, they just destroyed that. They
0: did, which is weird to yeah. me because it was useful. But it was like axis 1 were like mood disorders like anxiety, depression, you know, whatever, bipolarism. Axis 2 was personality disorders, axis 3 was physical ailments like, you know, has liver cancer. Axis 4 was was socioeconomic mm-hmm. st- environment Environment and access five was their functionality in the world you could look at an access five thing and get a thumbnail sketch of a person in 30 seconds yeah it was useful
1: totally useful because then you can also see the context and okay how much is their environment impacting
0: like if someone is diagnosed with you know uh you know alcoholism disorder And then, you know, rule out, which means make sure it's not their borderline personality disorder. Well, you know, you've got a case on your hands because that means that this person was getting pretty wildly intoxicated, probably is in remission and may have been a fucking crazy person because they were on, they were drinking. Right. Or or may just be a fucking crazy person.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that's why there's the behavioral pattern is the situation. Anyway,
0: so it's really, really useful. But again, when I hear a diagnosis, I see way past it. Yeah. It's a beginning point. It's like a doorway. It's a doorway. It's a doorway. There's another diagnosis I want to put in the, in the DSM, which is people who are addicted to restaurants. Like what do you it's, mean? They're addicted to restaurants.
1: Like they can't eat at home.
0: They, no they love going out to eat. They go out eat all the time.
1: Isn't that just a hobby? Why is that how is that a...
0: Because it feels like an addiction to me <laughs> because They don't ever stop. They're like they don't have enough money and they're like oh, yeah, they don't go they're taking over their lives. They just just always talk about this restaurant, that restaurant. I'm kind of making fun of it, but like <laughs> and actually a guy I know, his name is Sam. He's a very smart dude. He said that San Francisco's full of transplants and oh. it's possible that people are just looking for family. Like it's family for them. Oh. All these people are going out to eat. Like you see these parties of like, you know, all these folks. And we just want to f-
1: feel like they're in like the kitchen with their family. Something. I've lived in New York and LA and here, and I don't live in the city, but there's a lot of lonely folks.
0: Yeah, I grew up here, so I I my mom's like a twenty minute walk from oh, here. Oh wow. Yeah.
1: That's weird. Is that weird? It is weird. <laughs> Does she swing by?
0: No. My mother does not um swing no she doesn't (laughs) she she's kind of a um crone in the castle like she holds court you go she's like the queen you go to the palace you don't The you the the queen entertains yeah the queen does not come to your house (laughs) you go to her house house. she makes you tea she asks you how you're doing she gives you the packages that have shown up on the front porch because you don't you're afraid to have them sent to to your door because they'll get stolen you know she asks you how you've been you know you dating anybody no Um, mom she actually never asked me that but she doesn't no she doesn't do you think
1: that takes restraint on her part
0: no i don't think she wants to know weirdly it's a whole that's a whole thing i don't know in my in my family, talking about relationships, especially with women, it has always been taboo. And I can't tell if it's something that germinated when I was a child and grew into my own personal narrative, yeah, or if it's a real narrative that's in the family. Oh, interesting. I think it's mostly my shit. You should ask her i I'm okay. <laughs> i'm gonna ask her will you remind me to ask her
1: i'm just curious like i'm curious too if so like why is that taboo there's so many reasons it could be you know
0: i don't know man
1: it's so much easier to be like curious about someone else's family dynamic than your own so you know like
0: oh my god (laughs) now we're in my own shit what's your next item
1: um the other thing i want to talk about is that all of this being said, if we could peel away everybody's impulse to diagnose themselves and each other, I think it's really helpful and important to look at what what's there and to notice trends both in yourself and other people. I teach a class that covers abnormal psychology, and I have to give a whole week about how, okay, we're going to look at all these things. This is called medical student's disease. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> thinks they have everything as soon as they start reading because they're like, oh my God, I have felt one time this way. And it's like, well, this is a personality disorder, so that means you have to have all of the symptoms across all areas of your life for an extended And period. if you had
0: a personality disorder, you probably wouldn't even be saying Right, Any of that. Shit. right, 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 right.
1: <laughs> exactly. That's a good point. So you can't diagnose everyone as a narcissist. However, it's really helpful to notice what the trends are and what narcissistic behavior is so that you can identify it. Because even if the person you're dealing with isn't a narcissist, that behavior can be really corrosive to intimacy. Yes. Just as one of Traits. Yeah. So it's not like I want to peel away the DSM from everybody. What I want them to understand is that it's a nuanced, imperfect thing. And that if you look at it, instead of trying to reduce people, including yourself, to diagnostic codes.
0: I've upset quite a few people in my life by saying, hey, that's pretty narcissistic behavior. I know. You called me a narcissist. No, no, I didn't. And I understand because it's pretty fucking close. Narcissistic, narcissist. Like it's like two letters. Right. You know? (laughs) Right. So I get it. And I have to slow down and say, okay, I'm sorry I said that. Uh, This is what I mean. Right. Right. Like i have narcissistic behaviors you know like everyone does i'm I'm a fucking podcaster for god's sakes <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you it's, know
1: everyone does everyone has all the traits it's just that you don't have them in an organized fashion across all areas some more than a, like
0: i'm i'm saying i'm narcissistic and avoidant those are my traits you think oh for sure well, how does that like show up avoidance yeah I don't like talking to, meeting new people. I don't like talking to strangers in public. I don't like new situations. I don't like change. I don't like, I just, I'm socially awkward and, you know, I'd prefer to stay indoors and hide from the world, which mm-hmm. is weird because it's in direct opposition to my narcissistic desire to be kind of on stage and have all the lights on me
1: we all contain multitudes
0: we do i think there's also a certain safety of being the center of attention because then you're in control in a way Oh. so in other words like avoidance is like you're worried about what people are going to do but if you're the center of attention if you're loved you're not gonna get hurt oh, i love being on stage I hate it oh i put me in front of 10 million people i'll be cool as a cucumber
1: i get so like my whole nervous system like tries to revolt when i am in the spotlight in any capacity yeah Releasing a book has been the most uncomfortable thing I've done. Speak on that. First of all, this is going to sound like bullshit, but it's really true. The book is about the work. It's not about me. Like I have gathered all this knowledge that I think will be helpful. And so I wanted to get it out to as many people as possible, which is why I did a trade book instead of an academic book, which I've written before and nobody reads because they're $500. And they're also written for academic audiences, which is stupid, but... People want you. They want you wrote the book. They want more of your story. They want your face. They want you on camera. They want you on the podcast. Which, like, I'm super grateful for all of those opportunities. I'm not trying to say that it's a bad thing, but I break out in hives. My body is like, what are you doing?
0: um You said that happened to you on a podcast recently. Get out of the
1: spotlight. Yeah,
0: where you actually broke out in hives. Yeah. you can actually see it in the video. You can see your, it in your, the video. Re- yeah. Your neck is bright red. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it's yeah raised painful but true hives like it's not just like blush response well, i don't give you hives do i no now i'm gonna get them because we're talking about it do i have hives right now
0: you i don't see any okay. hives. <laughs> <laughs> you can watch they're going to come <laughs> um also you had a tiktok video go wildly viral recently and that was made you really uncomfortable
1: it's yeah it's got 1.6 million views Woo! Right now. And I had to. I have someone who helps me with social media because I'm just yeah, kind of an idiot when it comes too. to that. And I had to like text her and be like, I have to turn this off. Like I can't.
0: You turned off the video.
1: No, no, no. I turned off my like phone and didn't didn't look at it because oh. I didn't. I couldn't. I couldn't watch people watch me. Oh man! like it's so it's so uncomfortable and and like i'll get over it and it's helpful it's it's good to be pushed against this boundary or this limit because i can grow beyond it change is never comfortable it's not and i just think i survived my upbringing by hiding and so it's kind of pushing on all of these more primitive things where it's you're gonna get in trouble like you can't stand in the spotlight you're gonna get in trouble you know and it's like shit
0: wow well anyway uh what's next that's all i had that's all you had that's
1: all i had do you have any other th- burning things about diagnostics? Burning. <laughs> Let's talk about medication a little bit more.
0: Okay, please.
1: One of the benefits in not not being a clinical psychologist is that I operate as a coach, which means I can disclose more than
0: can I tell one story. Yes. Before please. we do medication, go for it. So I want to say one last thing about diagnosis. Okay. So Seymour, <laughs> God rest his soul, when he was being interviewed to be a member of the Jung Institute, the panel of you know very pompous and important. <laughs> Uh, union analysts sit in a semicircle and ask you questions for three hours
1: can you imagine i would love
0: that (sighs) anyway it's another story but they said how useful do you think diagnosis is and he says well the usefulness of diagnosis usually comes in handy when i get into arguments with my wife (laughs) (laughs) bastard (laughs) <laughs> anyway, um, and
1: then I can blame everything on that.
0: <laughs> well, it's just it's it just they laughed, but that was you know probably forty years ago when you could say things when like that say, and not when get canceled.
1: We have a sense of humor. In anyway,
0: so medication, you can can talk about medication mm-hmm. freely because you're not a yep. licensed psychologist. Yep,
1: and I can talk about my own experience. I can also talk about the research and all this other stuff, which I think is really helpful. Because, and then nested in this topic is the idea that being diagnosed. Can can. can be wildly validating. By my whole upbringing, I was told like, you're too sensitive, your emotions are a problem, all this stuff, and I have panic disorder. So I was having, yeah. I actually consider myself to be in remission because I haven't had a panic attack in a long time. And I have a whole toolbox of things to deal with them. But I consider myself to be in remission, but getting the diagnosis was so validating. Like I actually cried because I was like, oh, I just thought I was like weak. Mm -hmm. anyway, medication. So. I have tried a bunch of different medications and I find that so useful when I'm talking to clients about their decision to take medication or not. A lot of folks come in with a huge stigma and they don't want to try anything because they think it's only going to give them side effects the way that you described it earlier is that you say that this could be something that could potentially help it could be you know kind of a crutch for a short period of time if you're having panic attacks it can make you feel better to even just have a medication with you even if you don't take it because it gives you the sense that you can kind of rescue yourself if you're in public but i think it's just such crap that you can't really because you're not supposed to talk about your experience with medication or medication at all right
0: well when I do talk about meds, I'm, again, I do a lot of preamble. Yeah. I say, hey, listen, I'm not a doctor. Yeah, totally. I am not permitted to tell you which yeah. medications to take, or I'm not permitted to even recommend b- medications. Right. I can tell you what other people have told me Yeah. about symptoms involving these medications mm-hmm. and what I've experienced taking these medications.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If you'd like to hear that, I can tell you that, mm-hmm. but in no way. And I make it real fucking clear. Super clear. Because the patients will straight up ask me, like, should I be taking meds? I'm like, I, I, I can't answer that. Right. I really can't.
1: Right, like it's not allowed.
0: <laughs> it's not allowed. Yeah. And it's also, you know, I could say, hey, yeah, you should take this med. And you could take that med and you could do things like die.
1: Right.
0: You know, because you, maybe you your friend had some. Right. And you just took that because your therapist said you should take it. Yeah. And, they, and it does something horrible to you. Right. So I'm real careful with that stuff. What, what I also do is I say, look, what you need to do is you need to go to your psychiatrist or your doctor and sign a release information. Yeah. Have them call me, and I will talk to them about what I'm seeing. Yeah. And based on what I tell them, maybe they will prescribe you meds, and maybe they won't. Yeah. Yeah. I heard about this therapist in the '80s, this couples therapist who was giving her patients MDMA, Why? her couples patients, to help with connection. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And one of them died of a heart attack, and she went to prison for like 20 years. Holy shit. Yeah. Can you believe that?
1: I've heard that recently with ketamine, and it scares the shit out of me.
0: Yeah. I'm. I don't know what to make of that whole movement really don't i don't understand the the laws and ethics around the psilocybin and ketamine and ketamine is really powerful a ketamine can kill you in mm-hmm. the wrong amounts you know ketamine's it's a tranquilizer yeah you know a horse tranquilizer, horse tranquilizer yeah. or cat tranquilizer one of the two yeah i don't know what to make of all that stuff anytime anybody asks me about that shit uh, i'm like yeah i don't know well my, my basic position is that is that in my opinion it's dangerous because you don't know what you're gonna unlock in your psyche yeah that hallucinogenics in a way are more dangerous not not more dangerous than fentanyl but they're dangerous in the sense that what if you open a door that was supposed to remain closed yep.
1: And then no one's there to help you integrate it because you went and did it with some random dude in white yoga pants in LA. Like I think it's indicative of our reductive view of things where we're like, I have this problem and the thing I need to do is this one thing. And that will be the cure. If you're going to do that, there's listen, there's really promising research both about ketamine, actually about MDMA, about ketamine, and about psilocybin. But that research is being done in clinical settings that are very highly protected. And
0: I would recommend... Recommend people listen to a podcast called the uberman lab yeah h-u-b-e-r-m-a-n lab he talks about all the research if you have any questions go listen to that guy yeah he knows the things
1: he does he does a really fair treatment of it he does and if you're gonna do it make sure that you do it in a clinical setting that has approval to do it and the integration work that needs to come after don't do it in someone's home Don't do it as a one-off without any scaffolding. These experiences need to be integrated. Don't do it as a, a shamanic experience if what you're looking for is psychiatric benefit. The International Trauma Conference every year has a different theme. And psychedelics was the theme, I think, two years ago. And it was really fascinating to see the research. Like, it is really promising. Again, in these clinical settings where you have integration, and also you have doctors there who can help. If you have a bad experience, there are things they can administer.
0: So let's talk about speaking, because that sounds like a future podcast, trauma yeah. and psychedelics and stuff, oh, and sure. your yeah. understanding of that. Can we talk, let's talk about what's coming up. So this is the first in a series. Today yeah. was obviously diagnosis, diagnostics. Yep. And we are gonna be doing a whole host of things. We're gonna be talking about personality disorders. We're sort of covering the swath of the the psychological landscape about where trauma sits and we're gonna eventually get to trauma, Mm -hmm. but these are kind of all primer courses. Yeah. Are they not?
1: Yeah. And we also want to give you kind of a, an overview of where the field is in general from two people who are in it yeah, and in different ways, but in it so that you can get a more holistic understanding of what, what's going on so you can advocate for yourself. Feel The other things we had planned are kind of the current state of affairs there. We had flagged to talk about the explosion of telehealth and then some more, uh, I call this fuckery in the DSM, uh-huh. um, and then <laughs> where the field is headed. And then a primer on personality disorders and in particular how like sort of the quote-unquote cluster Bs are being misused. And then that's narcissism and histrionic yeah. his- uh, histri- and, his- and borderline. borderline and, yeah. And, yeah. and then an episode on psychopaths, sociopaths, and serial killers.
0: So we're, we're looking at the whole field because MC is super smart and I'm learning lots. Ben and is also uh, super smart. Yeah. <laughs> uh, i'm gonna ignore that and it's uh it's really awesome to have you in my back pocket thank you same uh you are a powerful sorceress and i fear you
1: i'm just a huge nerd there's no power (laughs) you don't know i have a lot
0: of books (laughs) all sorceresses have books do they that's true you have sor you have books and potions
1: books and potions
0: don't you have potions i'm sure i know you have potions I mean, you and Tracy have potions. I have like Tracy kind of has lots of potions. Tinted You've you tinted moisturizers. That's potions. Tracy has potions. For sure. Tracy is like, cool. She's a good witch. Yep. She's, we're both good witches. You are both good witches, and you live in Fairfax, <laughs> which is perfect because that's where all the good witches exactly. live. Exactly. All right. Listen, I think we're good. Thank you so yes. much. That was a Thank really you so excellent much. interview. Was fun. Yes, Yay. and we'll do another one in a few weeks or a month or so. Yeah, for sure. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. As always, relevant information will appear in the program notes, such as the Patreon. Please subscribe. If you have a question or would like to be a guest on my show, please email me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com or check out my website at benjaminrussick.com. Thanks again and catch you next time.